Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. For those who are familiar with Florida history, names of well-known pioneers come to mind, like Henry Flagler, Carl Fisher, and Frank and Ivy Stranahan, just to name a few. But there are those who are not given the same credit in the history books, yet their contributions to the making of modern Florida have impacted us even to this day. The SoFlo team would like to bring to light these notable pioneers. Today we shine a light on William Calhoun Bill Baggs, editor of the Miami News from 1957 to 1969. When Bill arrived in Miami in the autumn of 1944, he encountered a subtropical port city transformed by war, not unlike Panama. The former frontier town had become a combination of Casablanca and Grand Central Station through a series of booms and busts, ups and down cycles resulting from the aftershocks of both hurricanes and failed schemes. To get to the heart of his story, we caught up with author Amy Page Condon during the Miami Book Fair, who's written the first ever biography of Bill Baggs. Today we're speaking with Amy Page Condon, who is an award-winning freelance writer and the founder of the Refinery Writing Studio, where she teaches creative writing. She serves as associate editor of Beacon, a quarterly magazine devoted to solutions journalism from the Savannah Morning News. In her latest book, A Nervous Man Shouldn't Be Here in the First Place, The Life of Bill Baggs, it's the first biography of this influential editor of the Miami News, which retraces how an orphan boy from rural Colquitt, Georgia, bore witness and impacted some of the 20th century's most earth-shifting events like World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Vietnam War. Welcome, Amy. Welcome to the SoFlo Weird Show. Oh, thank you so much, Mia, for having me on today. To me, my take on it was that he was a people's journalist. You know, he spoke out against social injustice, advocating for peace during the Vietnam War and environmental preservation. In my opinion, he was on the right side of history that was often unpopular and quite frankly caused him to receive a bunch of hate mail and ultimately you know, newspaper subscriptions. So he was very relentless in his pursuit for the truth. What actually motivated you to tell this particular story? I was a park planner in Miami-Dade County when I first heard his name in the park that's named for him on the Tippecanoe Biscayne, Bill Baggs Cape Florida State Park. And I just sort of offhandedly asked the first time I visited there who he was. And somebody that I was in a group was said, oh, he was an editor of the Miami News or something like that, not really knowing his story either. And it just intrigued me that a park would be named for a newspaper editor. And little bit by little bit over the years, I kept learning his story about how it was an editorial he wrote that was an open letter to the landowner that convinced the landowner to actually sell the land at Key, on Key Biscayne for the park. And it was like, okay, I want to read that column. And as I got to know the park rangers there, they would tell me how he was influential in civil rights, but I never really understood how much. And then by chance, I was actually in a creative writing class at Miami-Dade College. There was an elderly woman sitting near me and she had a lot of spunk and she was very funny. We started a conversation and I asked her a question about the piece of hers that we were workshopping. And I kind of offhandedly said, is this really the story you want to tell us? 
And she goes, no, I'd really rather write about my husband. And I go, what do we, what, what's your name again? And she goes, Freck Bags. And I just got chills at that moment when she said her name. And I said, by chance, was Bill Bags your husband? And she goes, oh, you have heard of him. He was the most marvelous man. And I got to talk with her for about a year as she was writing her memoir. And she self-published her memoir in 2008, and it was called I Thought He Hung the Moon. And it's this beautiful story about how they met on Miami Beach during um, the waning days of World War II. She was a recreational assistant for the Red Cross. He was in Miami for rest and reassignment after serving as a bombardier in Italy. So it was very sweeping from here to eternity kind of story. But she would just say things offhandedly like, oh, well, that's when, you know, Kennedy put the phone line in our home so that he could talk to Bill directly. Or, oh, that's when Johnson's people were following us in the hotel. (laughs) She would say these things that I'd go back up. And yeah, yeah, pretty soon I was like, okay, this man was influential in really profound ways beyond just journalism, but his, you're exactly right. He was the people's journalist because he believed uh, a local paper's main job was to help the citizens of a community be as informed as possible because he believed so fully that democracy depended upon an enlightened citizenry. And he was not a a hugely well-educated man. He was very self-educated. And he believed that newspapers could serve that very same purpose for the people in a community just by virtue of having that sort of public service orientation to his thinking and his relentless pursuit of sort of the truth to get to the heart of the story and always being willing to talk to the people on the margins, not just the decision makers, but he really looked at how did news affect people, whether it was international, national or local, how did it affect how people lived in their day-to-day lives. And unfortunately, he died so young. He was only 45 years old in 1969 when he died, and his story nearly died with him. And he he was very fond of saying we could get a lot accomplished if we didn't matter who got the credit. And so he didn't seek credit for the things that he did. And I think that's why most people really don't know his story or his contributions, because he wasn't looking for the credit. He was really willing to stay behind the scenes. Even when you look it up right now, everything comes up about the state park, Bill Bag State Park. Mm-hmm. There was quite a lot of interesting things that was brought out in this book. Um, one of the shocking things to me that made my mouth drop open was that the Justice for Victims of Lynching Act passed in 2019 and to this day, lynching is not considered a hate crime. Yes. And how he became disillusioned uh, by religion at a young age when he recognized a member of the church as part of like this lynch mob that he had mm-hmm. witnessed, which was actually what the, you say, one of the pivotal moments where he began to question authority. Yes. Uh, he had been sort of, um, as a child in Colquitt, Georgia, he he went to live with two aunts and an uncle after he was orphaned. He was orphaned around the age of 11, almost 12. 
And he was sent by the family guardian in Atlanta to live in this very rural part of Georgia. And he was sort of a a high achiever. He lettered in all the sports. He started a newspaper there in elementary school when he got there, and he was the editor of the high school newspaper. He was very well liked, voted by his classmates to be valedictorian and deliver the valedictory address. But in the midst of this, when he was about 13, 14 years old, he witnessed a lynching. A following Sunday, he recognized that one of the men who had been involved in the lynching was also the man passing the offering plate. And he was already sort of a curious writer. So he was already steeped in wanting to be a journalist by this age. But at that moment, he stopped sort of being the rule follower, and the people pleaser. And in fact, not long after that, he received an appointment to the Naval Academy and he turned it down. And I think that was sort of the key moment that set him off that the very people that you may look up to may also be the very people who disappoint you the most. And that who people are publicly are not necessarily who they are privately. From that moment on, he he actually called himself an atheist, or self-described as an atheist. But I think more than anything that he was a humanist and he believed in the human spirit and he believed everybody deserved a, a fair shot. And so he really fought against those systemic uh, obstacles that prevented people living the fullness of their life. And he brought that same mindset to Miami when he finally took a job at the Miami News. He was really the master at forging relationships. I mean, with with everybody in all walks of life, mm-hmm. I mean, world leaders trusted him. How do you think he was able to connect to people so they would just freely open up to him? I think part of it, he had sort of this young face and he had sort of this friendly, open demeanor. He was very funny. He was kind of tall and lanky, lanky and kind of awkward. He also had no awe. That was the interesting thing when I've talked to people who knew him that worked with him. They said he treated everybody exactly the same, whether you were a a homeless man on the street um, uh, or the prince of a nation. He 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 would joke with you. He often connected with you. Like if you if you had children, he would talk about his children if he would find the thing that connected you, that had nothing to do with your position or your title or your wallet size, he was trying to connect on a very human level. And oftentimes he would bring stories of the people that he met in the community. He would use those as openers to people in positions of power. He also was a famous joke teller and a practical joker, but One of the things he was also able to do is even if you vehemently disagreed with him, he recognized your humanity and he did not demonize you for not agreeing with him, which I'm still trying to figure out how he was able to bridge that and even often make friends of the people who had originally started as enemies or people who just absolutely could not stand his positions that he took in his column would often seek out his counsel anyway, because he did not treat people with disrespect simply because they had a difference of opinion 
or he had no qualms in calling out when people were wrong. But he did it in a way that wasn't shameful. He would recognize and understand how people arrived at those conclusions, but also be able to point out how perhaps those conclusions were wrongheaded without being pious or shaming or smug. Well, that kind of morphs into the fact that he goes on to become a diplomat and he winds up heavily involved in peace talks and the freeing of prisoners. Do you feel this created kind of a conflict of interest where he's he's kind of documenting the story as a journalist, but then as a diplomat, he's working to influence or negotiate an outcome? Yeah. Definitely. I think you can make the case that this was a period in time where he was as much a part of the news as he was reporting the news. You know, it's interesting because earlier in his career, he fought very much against this idea of press secretaries and folks, people who managed the news and presented the news in a way that gave it its best face without actually taking deeper dives. So you can make the case that once he became involved with the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions and was sent by them into North Vietnam to sort of find out what the conditions for peace would be, that he became part of that managing the news. But there's one thing that I, I find interesting is that he did not want to be seen as anyone who was taking credit for trying to make peace. He left himself out of the stories. And the way that he wrote the stories was as much of a documenter and witness so that people would really understand what was happening in North Vietnam. Because he was so pained by the Vietnam War, he would keep regular tallies of how many U.S. soldiers were dying every day. And he would, every once in a while in 1968, he would have a column just about who had died. And he was receiving letters from parents that were saying, can you, next time you go to Vietnam, can you at least see if my son is a prisoner of war or if he's alive or how he's doing? And he did try many times to at least get access, and he never could. He was always denied that. And he, he was denied allowing the Red Cross even to get in, in to see the condition of prisoners of war. He bore that personally. And I think that had a lot to do with the health problems in the final year of his life is that he could not, for some reason, he felt personally responsible for helping bring peace so that more people wouldn't die. And I think that because it was slow going, it was hard to find people to trust in our own government as well as the the Vietnamese government that it just chipped away at him. But he, you can definitely make the case that he breached journalism's ethics, so to speak, when at that point in time, when he sort of became this accidental diplomat, it wasn't a position he looked for, but it was definitely something he found himself in. Do you think him and his experience as a bombardier had any effect on his decision on being a diplomat? I do. Although he never explicitly stated in any of his his columns, his letters home during World War II, he talked a lot about he would be in the nose, that glassed in nose of a plane before he would have to, you know, let the bombs go. And he would write about what it felt like to be in that nose of that plane and how he said, when you see the earth from this position, 
you see how peaceful and how beautiful and how stunning it is. And then the flax starts and the plane rocks and you realize how fragile your life is, how it could be gone at any moment. And he said, when people say they're not scared, you can tell that they're lying if you just really look in their eyes. And I think he was covering, in some respects, his own fear, but also his recognition that children were suffering so severely. He was stationed just outside of a little village in Venosa, Italy, and he wrote often about the children who... At that point in time in Italy, the only people left in the village were either the elderly, the mothers, or the children, because either the men had all died or they had all gone off to war. And so it was extreme, extreme poverty. So he goes to Vietnam, North Vietnam, and sees firsthand the destruction the American bombing campaign is doing and how it's very different than what we've been told because we were told that they were only bombing concrete and steel, only bombing factories, or they were only bombing munitions, or they were only bombing the pathways by which weaponry was getting into South Vietnam. But he gets there and he sees that schools and housing and churches and Buddhist temples have all been bombed, whereas a marshalling yard or a factory a mile away is not. And so he really becomes quite disillusioned with his own government. But also, I do believe that there was some aspect of him that felt like he was paying a bit of penance for World War II. Yeah, and that's what I kind of mm-hmm. read into it. That's got to be sobering to be able to walk among the ruins and know that at one point you were part of that too. No matter how necessary it was in World War II, but to also understand that you didn't hit your target every time and there were civilian casualties as a result of your work. And, you know, in the early 1950s, he actually went back to Europe as part of, as a reporter for the Miami News, actually looking at the progress of rebuilding under the Marshall Plan. He went back into some of the very communities that he bombed and saw how long lasting that destruction was and how you don't just recover from it just by rebuilding. And so I think that stuck with him. It had to be such an absolute necessity and that we should never be the aggressor. We should be the peacekeeper. He lived his reporting. He, he lived his news, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, he was fearless. He put himself in dangerous many Mm -hmm. times. What can you tell us about, um, uh, Bill's legacy and how it affects us today. I mean, I found a lot of, you know, so much has changed and so much has really not changed while reading the story. But um, how do you think this affects us today? Well, I think one of the lessons of his life and something we actually need to examine in in terms of the conveyance of news and information is he very much believed that journalism was a public service enshrined in that First Amendment, and that the job of a local newspaper is to inform its readers, whether they like it or not, how national, international, and local decisions will affect their life. He did not believe that newspapers or even broadcast news should seek to be popular, that they should seek to inform, and that getting at the truth 
was not always the easiest thing and that it did put you in an adversarial position oftentimes with people in power. But to be in an adversarial position did not mean that you had to win at all cost or annihilate the competition, that your job was to find the truest essence of how decisions would affect people's lives. He was seeking for journalism to serve its highest purpose, not to entertain, but to inform and to enlighten and to engage and to continue critical conversations within communities. I think another aspect of it is that we cannot expect journalists simply to bear witness but that they have to have that sometimes they do have to take a stand that in fact not every argument has equal sides that sometimes the facts do fall much more heavily on one side and he used that platform to push his community to do better on civil rights and to push for laws that changed the way Florida is run. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that the reason why Florida has the the court system it does or has even the apportionment it does is because he fought so hard in his columns for the state of Florida to have representation based on population. While South Florida had only had 10% of the population, it only had 3% of the representation at the state level. And so he served on the the, um, Constitution Revision Committee to push for that. He also pushed for the um, voting age to be brought down to 18 years old. He's like, if you're going to send people into war, they need to have a voice on that. And he also put forth really one of the first equal rights amendments out there. He got shot down on that. It didn't pass. But he, he wanted gender parity to be part of the protections enshrined in the Florida Constitution. So he was very much a progressive and he was very much ahead of his time. And he was willing to suffer sort of the slings and arrows of both friends and enemies to take those stands, knowing that sometimes he would lose friends because he would push for the equal treatment of people. That kind of courage is a legacy. And, you know, that that in and of itself is such a critical conversation we need to be having today. I used to sort of lament that it was taking me so long to write the book, and then I finally realized it's coming out at just the right time. These are the conversations we need to be having right now. Well, Amy, thank you so much. I, I'm so glad that you brought this story um, to us, and I'm glad I'm bringing it to our listeners because he was a very important man. Um, and I just I really appreciate the story. So thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for inviting me and let me talk a little bit about it. That was author Amy Page Condon talking about the life and legacy of journalist Bill Baggs. We'd like to give a shout out to the Miami Book Fair, who graciously provides us with these award-winning authors. We'll be featuring more authors in future episodes. If you'd like to hear more from Amy or any other participating author from the Miami Book Fair, go to miamibookfaironline.com, where all programs are available now for streaming. We'll also provide a link from our website at soflowweird.com.
Next, we feature two brief stories. One is about a man who did not want to profit from his work. Instead, his talents benefited the community, much like Bill Baggs. He's been dubbed the father of Florida folk. The other story is about a place where Christmas and pioneer life is celebrated all year long. These are from Charlie Carlson's book, Strange Florida. Wherever I wander In summer or winter The ocean is calling me back To Florida sand Sand, sand To Florida sand Sand, sand Florida's black hat troubadour. Will McLean was a true Florida cracker. He was born in 1919, and during his 70 years of life wrote more than 3,000 songs about his beloved Florida. He gained enough fame to perform on stage at Carnegie Hall in 1967. His name is inscribed in the Florida Artists Hall of Fame, and the theater production of Plain Folks was based on his music. Yet Will McLean never made a dime from his songs about the Sunshine State. Florida's official folk singer died poor in 1990, having given away his music, saying, It all belongs to Florida. For always the love of this man is Florida sand, 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 is Florida sand, sand, sand. Beautiful sun kissed land, oh Florida sun. Each year, Florida singers and songwriters gather at the Will McLean Folk Festival in Brooksville, Florida to honor him. It's really an event where you can spend a weekend camping and listening to great Florida music. The Will McLean Foundation also holds a Best New Florida Song Contest to keep McLean's mission alive. The next festival will be held March 11th through the 13th of 2022. Never-ending Christmas. A living Christmas tree stays decorated all year in the small town of Christmas, Florida. Each year, thousands of holiday cards are mailed from the town's post office just for the unusual postmark. The community, located on East Highway 50 in Orange County, gets its odd name from Fort Christmas. Built in December 1837 during the Seminole War, the fort has been reconstructed and is a historical museum. Fort Christmas Historical Park is recommended for its excellent exhibition of pioneer life in Florida. If you happen to visit there during the holidays, don't forget your cards. You can postmark them from Christmas. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more Strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and Lisa Pally, publicist for the Miami Book Fair. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. 
Stay weird, everybody.